As you, therefore, have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them. This is the word of the Lord. As a boy, I grew up hunting and fishing with my father. My father had learned to hunt and fish when he was a boy growing up in the Great Depression. Uh, His family needed what he and his father could kill or catch. One of my favorite hunting was going hunting for quail. We always had a really good quail dog when I was a boy, usually an older dog and a younger dog that my dad was trying to train. If you've never seen two great quail hunting dogs work, you've missed something. It really is a thing of beauty whether you want to try to shoot a bird or not. Uh, We would let the dogs out when we'd get to a field, often a field they had never seen before. And as soon as the dogs were out of the vehicle, my dad would simply circle like this and say, let's hunt. And these two dogs would start running. It might be a 10-acre meadow there, and they would start around the perimeter. Sometimes the grass was tall, and you could see them just every once in a while, way over on the opposite side of the field, going completely around. They were going at full speed. And it's really amazing to see one of these bird dogs going at full speed, leaping over this tall grass, when suddenly he catches the first scent of the bird. It dropped as if they'd been shot. I mean dropped to the ground, nose pointed toward that bird. Sometimes when they went down, you couldn't see exactly where they were and would have to start looking for them. It might take ten minutes to get there, and that lead dog had not moved in ten minutes. And when the young one learned to back up the, the first one, when that young one learned that when the first one goes down, you go down too immediately and point your nose in exactly the same direction. You see, that younger puppy has all the genes necessary to be a good bird hunter. In fact, he smells everything wonderfully well. And so my dad would say, we've got to teach this puppy not to chase rabbits. We're not chasing rabbits, we're hunting quail. Genesis says that you and I were created nephish. It literally means open mouth, like a new baby bird that's just pecked through the shell. Dr. Bill Power, one of our former Barton Clinton Gordy presenters, said, We are a bundle of appetites, and the satisfaction of those appetites is a good thing. But when they get out of whack, when they are not disciplined, when they're not trained, when the person is not in control of the appetites and satisfaction of the appetites, then we're in real trouble. This letter was sent to the church at Colossae. I told you that Colossae was about 120 miles inland from the very important port city of Ephesus in what is modern-day Turkey. Epaphras had taken the gospel to this community. They were primarily heathen and pagan, worshippers of multiple gods, the old gods and goddesses of fertility. Epaphras convinced some of them, certainly not huge numbers, probably a group of people that could meet in somebody's house. 
that there is only one God, the God of Israel, and that this God of Israel had so revealed himself in a person named Jesus of Nazareth, and that they could know themselves rightly related to this God if they would trust that this God wanted good to come to their hearts and lives. Well, there were some who believed, and Epiphras moved on. Now detractors came in right behind. This happened in church after church. We were dealing with the letter to the churches in Galatia. We had the same thing. These people who came in and said, well, Epiphras forgot to tell you an important thing, and that is before you can be a Christian and rightly related to Israel's God, you have to be a Jew, and that means all you grown men will have to be circumcised and all of you will have to eat kosher. And there were others who came into that same little faith community and said, well, you know, this is really not true. I mean, the gods and goddesses we've always worshipped, those of your grandparents and your parents, they are the real ones who've looked after you for centuries, come back home to them. So how was this author trying to keep them focused? How was he trying to refocus them? Four things today. Number one. You have received Christ Jesus the Lord, he says. You have received Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, you and I string those words together in our conversations in Sunday school and worship that we forget that every word is so important. Uh, for ten years I taught uh, Methodist doctrine at Phillips Theological Seminary, and in my classes I would always say to these women and men seeking ordination in the Methodist Church, I guarantee you that you're going to be asked by the Board of Ordained Ministry, explain this little sentence to us, Jesus Christ is Lord. And they'll expect more than a minute or two. In fact, they'll probably ask you to write it, and they'll want you to write ten or twelve pages. They'll want you to write as much as you can about Jesus. What do you know about Mary's child? What do you know about this child who grew up at Nazareth? Uh, who was he when he was a young adult? Went south to the Jordan River, was baptized by his cousin John. Was tempted as to what this calling of his was and how his ministry would be lived out. Went back to the Sea of Galilee, to the little village of Capernaum, and began to call disciples, Andrew and Peter, James and John, and eight others who were closest of all to him. Became a teacher, a preacher, a healer, a worker of miracles. One who was so focused on doing the will of God and confronting authorities in Jerusalem whom he felt were not doing God's will the way God wanted it done that it eventually led him to death on a Roman cross. You need to write as much as you can about that person, Jesus. Then you need to write about what it means to say he is the Christ. Christ, Christos is a Greek word. It's a direct translation of the Hebrew Messiah. What does it mean for you to believe that Jesus, a real flesh and blood person, was God's long-awaited Messiah? The one Hebrew prophets had talked about for hundreds of years, one who would come and set things right in God's creation. You believe Mary's child was that one? And then the word Lord, I've told you again and again, so important, translation of the name given to Moses at the burning bush. That God who confronted Moses, sent him back to Egypt, faced down Pharaoh, led his people through the waters of the sea into the Sinai desert, gave them the Ten Commandments, led them from watering hole to watering hole for 40 years, making them a community of faith before leading them through Joshua across the Jordan into the Promised Land. 
that Lord was present in Mary's child Jesus. You see, when you say that, you're saying a lot of things. You received Christ Jesus the Lord. Elizabeth Sherrill was writing recently about her Holy Week experience. She said she and John go to a church that has Monday Thursday services, as we do here. Uh, the closing act of worship on Monday Thursday night is to strip the altar of all beautiful things or to drape them in black. We do that. We drape the font. We, we, we drape uh, the baptismal uh, font and, and the cross, uh, the chalice here on the altar. Uh, the last image we want people to have Thursday evening of that week is of a darkened sanctuary. They're to go quiet in their cars, drive away. We have Good Friday service, but it's not in the sanctuary. We don't want anyone in here uh, after Thursday night. Uh, they're supposed to remember everything draped in black. We have the Good Friday service in the Great Hall. And Saturday, then, is a, is a time that's supposed to be quiet, a time of reflection before that glorious Easter morning when we come back into the sanctuary see hundreds of white, white lilies and hear our choirs beginning to sing and our instrumentalists beginning to play and so on. Well, she said that's the way they had done it all these years at the church, she and John attend. But that they were in Russia on a trip and went into a Russian Orthodox church. And they were admiring the beautiful iconography, one of Mary, one of Jesus, one of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. But there were other paintings and other beautiful mosaics in this Russian Orthodox church. And one of them, she said, I kept trying to figure out exactly what was going on here. And then I realized this was an artist's rendering of a part of one of our creeds where we say, he descended into hell. In the Bible, there are two words sometimes translated hell. One of them is the word Gehenna, which is an allusion to that city dump just outside Jerusalem, a fire that burned day and night because refuse was continually being added to it. But the other is a very different word, Hades, and it's the same as the Hebrew word Sheol. It means damp and dark, a place of death, like a tomb. And so she said, here it was, he descended into hell, and there was Jesus in that damp, dark place among the dead. He really did die, really was buried. Stone rolled over the mouth of the tomb. But in this artist's rendering, Jesus had come in with robe flying, she said, and was reaching out with a right hand for one and left hand for another and right hand for one and left hand for another, lifting the dead to everlasting life in the kingdom of God. That's the way you and I began. We received Christ Jesus, the Lord. Number two, I skip down to the very end of what I read, verse 15, because here's a Greek verb that describes very clearly the image the author has in mind. When Roman generals went out to fight an enemy and were triumphant far more times than not, they took the leaders of the conquered army or conquered government and brought them back to Rome and marched them through the streets in chains. And the people gathered by the thousands and screamed for the general what glorious work he and his troops had done in destroying another of the enemies. That's the word that's used here. That God in Christ Jesus has destroyed the biggest enemies we've ever imagined. The principalities and the powers. What is that? War? 
disease, death. In Christ Jesus, God has bound them in chains and dragged them through the streets. They cannot hurt you. In the long run, they cannot hurt you. There's a new movie out called Flame and Citron. Joe Morgenstern has reviewed this movie in the Wall Street Journal. This movie comes out of Denmark, and it's about World War II. It is a true story about two persons, Flame and Citron. And in case you don't uh, pick up, Joe Morgenstern says, Now those were their noms de guerre, the names during the war. They're a part of the Danish resistance. The Nazis have swept across Denmark and now are occupying the country. But as in many of the occupied countries in Western Europe, the Danes are not happy about that, and there were some who were willing to risk their lives to create as much havoc as they could with the Nazi regime. But this is what Joe Morgenstern writes. The question for Flame and Citron, and they were made known after the war, by the way, and became national heroes in Denmark. The great question was, how can we defeat our biggest enemies without becoming just like them. How can we defeat our biggest enemies without becoming just like them? God has defeated them. We line up on the side of God. Number three, it says here, continue in him. And I think that conveys the meaning, but it's not what it says exactly. The word in Greek is peripateo, from which we get peripatetic, one who walks. One who walks. And that's what the verb really means, walk in him. And the reason I like that rendering right now is that we have an expression in our own language, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. And that's what this author wrote 2,000 years ago. If you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, if you know that he has once and for all defeated the biggest enemies that confront humankind, they cannot take you from the love of God, none of them, then you walk in him. It says rooted. This is like a tree putting down deep, deep roots into this rich soil of Christ Jesus the Lord. Built up, that is, we have the firmest foundation one can possibly have. Established. Continue in him. I was reading an article recently about a fellow named Nick Ruggieri. Nick lives in New York City eight months of the year. For all of his adult life, he's auditioned one play after another that's going on to Broadway or even off Broadway. He's never, ever been chosen. Not once. So he has the kinds of jobs that actors and actresses often have, waiting tables, whatever he can, till the next audition. And he goes and auditions, and he's never chosen. But years ago, someone told him about a summer theater in Jennerstown, Pennsylvania, over in the mountains. The mountains are filled with people looking for cool, fresh air in the summertime, and a theater's been built there. And this summer theater does four well-known plays, different ones, summer after summer, the ones you know, Annie, Guys and Dolls, My Fair Lady. And one of his friends said to Nick, You know, 
not everybody goes and tries out in Jennerstown, Pennsylvania. Why don't you audition out there? And he auditioned for Guys and Dolls and was chosen to play the lead. He auditioned for Annie and was chosen for the male lead. He auditioned play after play and was chosen to play the lead. They do four every summer. So while you're doing one for three weeks, you're rehearsing play number two. And you do it four weeks and then you rehearse and do play number three. And every summer he writes ahead and says, I want to audition for that lead. I want to audition. And they write him letters and say, hurry, Nick, we're ready to start. And he goes. He said, I walk in restaurants and people know me. They even call the ticket office and say, which plays will Nick be in this summer? Then I go back to New York and I wait tables and I audition, but I never get chosen. And there are times when I ask myself, what am I going to do when I get a real job? I'm 56 now, he said. And then the realization came to me, this is my real job. This is my real job. This is who I am. This is what I think I'm supposed to be doing. I do it the best I know how. We are Christian. We are the church in our time and place. We are to walk in Him. Number four. So this is a brief letter. It has only four chapters. Fewer than a hundred verses. But six times it says, Be grateful. Be grateful. In this passage today it says, abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding. Pam Kidd has written that she'd always dreamed about going to Paris. Of all the places she could have dreamed, I wanted to go to Paris. And I had told enough people that she said a few years ago, my mother and my stepfather said, well, we didn't give you so much for your birthday this year and so much for Christmas and quite so much for Valentine's or whatever. We've been saving a little on the side. Now we're going to send you to Paris. And she said, I took their ticket and I went all by myself. I love to walk, she said, so I walked. For hours I walked through Paris. It would start to rain and I'd just put up my umbrella and keep walking. Sun would come back out, I'd put up my umbrella and keep walking. I'd stop and have a dessert, I'd stop and have a cup of coffee, and then I'd walk some more. I'd go into one beautiful church and maybe spend 30 minutes, and I'd walk some more. I saved till my very last day a trip to the museum. Yes, I had to go to the Louvre, and more than anything else, I wanted to see the Mona Lisa. Well, she said, I got up early that morning. I'm going to spend the whole day in the museum, my last day there. And when I got within a block of the place, there were thousands of people. And I started asking, what's going on? And they said, well, they've declared free day today. And she thought, oh, no, I will never get in. She was thrumming through her little guidebook when it said down near the bottom, there is a back door to the Louvre. And she said, I went around to the back door just in case. There was a guard watching the door. But when I asked him, please, sir, this is my last day. I probably will never be here again. And saying a few words in French in a southern accent, he thought I was funny and he let me in. 
And so I hurried. I was following my guidebook. I wanted to get to the Mona Lisa before huge crowds got there. And surely enough, when I walked into the right room, I was the only person there. I rushed over to the painting. I'd heard others say, it's little. It's dark. It's not really so significant. But I dreamed of this all my life. And I walked up to it. Wow. All these hundreds of years old. Leonardo da Vinci's beautiful masterpiece, the Mona Lisa. I felt warm tears well up in my eyes. And suddenly I was aware that a guard was standing there watching me. And I looked at him and said, She's beautiful, isn't she? And he said, Ah, you came in believing. <laughs>